0: Well, what does it feel like when you all of a sudden look at your bank account and you have hundreds of millions of dollars in it
1: man i remember that's a good question i remember i took a a screenshot when the wires came in and I, I sent it to to my mom like hey this is wild look at this
0: I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? All right, today I talk with Miguel Fernandez. He is the CEO of CapChase, and they have raised, wait for it, $280 $280 million. Yes, that's a million dollars. They are really changing the game with how startups think about raising money. Instead of going after venture capital, you can actually raise money from them. And their growth has been insane, but his his background is even more impressive. He's a former mechanical engineer, nuclear engineer, went to Harvard, and then him and some friends came up with this idea to really get into the fintech space. So he talks about who is this right for? Because, hey, 5% of founders raise from VC firms, what about the other 95%? That's who he's going after bootstrap founders, e commerce SaaS founders. We get into his story, his journey of going from engineering to sales to Harvard, but really helpful for anyone that wants to hear about how to kind of launch your own fintech startup or anyone that's looking at raising money in non traditional ways. He's got some good ideas. So, really hope you enjoyed this episode with Miguel. Okay, so I'm very excited to have Miguel here. I've been following Cap Chase for a while. I've seen these huge numbers that he has raised and his valuations, and he's really changing the game with the way people think about raising money and fundraising and not having to dilute themselves. So before we dive in, Miguel, what is Cap Chase?
1: Yeah, funny you ask about how much we've raised exactly to help companies not raise, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, CAPS is what it is, like what we are doing, basically we're putting funding on pilot for tech companies, so particularly non dilutive financing. So essentially, companies can grow and unlock capital for growth, but without having to sell parts of the company. So how it works is companies with, you know, predictable revenues, instead of having to wait for those revenues in the future, they can just tap into them at any time to fund growth today.
0: So... I want to get into the mechanics of it. But first, let's talk about the problem you're solving. Because usually when people are starting a company and they have big goals, you need capital to fund that. And when you look at your options, a lot of times people have to go down the path of, raising venture capital money. And is the problem with that the fact that you're way you're getting these big numbers in your bank, but you're giving up a lot of equity? So is that one of the main reasons why you went after this is to solve that problem?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. So if you look at the largest, like the huge successes of companies uh, going public and costing like multi-billion valuations, then you look at the cap table and the original founders own like 6%, 2%, 10% of the, of the actual equity of the company, right? Which means that, yeah, like the company has been a huge success and that's upside, you know, it's being captured by a lot of people, but not so much by the founders themselves who have poured like 10 years of their lives into, into a venture, right? So, so the reason why is because they keep, I mean, these companies are going on to hyper growth, which means that they need a lot of money to grow. And that money usually comes from VC funding, which involves selling parts of the company to get that VC
0: funding. Right? It's you raise the VC funding, you're getting diluted, and they want to see 10x returns. So you're constantly raising more and more. And it makes you, as a founder, or even one of those first employees, to even get to some sort of semblance of money that could be life changing, man, you just have to hit such a huge target down the road. So you're solving that problem. You're letting people raise money. Talk to me. I'm like, okay, I'm in. Give me some money, Cap Chase. How do you qualify? Who gets the money? Is it specifically for SaaS, software as a service companies? Is it for e-commerce founders? Kind of walk through, how can I get some money from CapChase?
1: Okay, perfect. We not only work with VC companies, right? Like VC companies are the ones that are taking a shot at becoming unicorns, and that's like a very small subset of the tech entrepreneurs that we work with. right? If you think about it, only 0.5% of startups gets VC funding. So the other 99.5% is huge as well. And we also work with those companies. So yeah, let's say that you want to take money from Captase and you want to fund your business in a non-dilutive way. So then you just log into Captase. You connect your data in three clicks. It's almost like logging into Facebook three times. And then then we get the data. And then the following day, you would get an offer of how much of your predictable revenue you can tap into at any given time. Right? That can be 30, 40, 50, 60% of your predictable revenues. And then to your question of what types of companies usually work with, they don't have to be just SaaS, they just have to have predictable revenue. So, when we think about what predictable revenue means, is that you can look at, at users, look at repeat orders or repeat purchases or some frequency in payments, and then model that out to see hey, if I get a user today, what does that mean over the following 12 months? Uh, for the revenue of the the business
0: gotcha so I assume you have some sophisticated technology whether it's a SaaS tool that's plugging into your system or maybe it's a e-commerce Shopify store you're going through there you're doing the due diligence Like, all right these guys do 150,000 a month here's like the return rate or here's the recurring revenue and based off that you come up with the calculation all right we can give This team six to twelve months of that is it as simple as is that or am I am I missing a part of it?
1: I think it's even a little bit simpler, right? Actually, directionally totally right. So let's say that company yeah with a million dollars in ARR, right? That can be in subscriptions, it can be in contracted revenue, it can be you know just just predictable revenue or like even like annual payments of customers. So we look at that, we look at the data, we look at a bunch of very granular metrics that we derive from the data. And then we tell them, hey, as of today, you can tap into, let's say, 40% of your annual run rate revenue, right? And then based off of that, they know that if the next month they grow 10%, the availability of funding that they can pull also grows 10%. And if they grow 100%, then the availability grows 100% as well. So it is a funding model that is as scalable as a company and, in fact, sometimes as recurring as predictable as a company itself. We see a ton of companies drawing money every week to fund acquisition, and then their AR grows, and then their availability grows, and then they do it again and again, and they turn into absolute growth flywheels.
0: Wow. So the people that are, are borrowing this money, what, what are they usually using that money for? Is that to fund marketing and growth? Is it to get people or to invest in technology? Where do you see them putting the money?
1: Right. So we we have two main products, right? We have revenue financing product and then an expense financing product, like a buy now pay later. So then the revenue financing is just people you know, like getting the money, pulling their ARR forward and investing it primarily in growth related activities, right? So either on user acquisition or in salespeople hiring or to acquire companies and their revenues, also to sometimes to buy back shares from previous investors. But yeah, you, you see so, so primarily either either growth or equity preservation activities. That's on the revenue financing side. On the expense financing side, which is imagine like flipping the coin and instead of bringing forward revenues, you're pushing out expenses, right? It's like a buy now, pay later. They are paying for software, for infrastructure. So imagine, instead of paying $100,000 to AWS upfront, they can use Capsace, Capsace pays 100000 and then they pay back to 100000 divided by 12 every month, right? So they use this for infrastructure, they use it for software, for professional services, and also paying the taxes at the end of every quarter. And instead of paying it at once, they can spread it over the next three months or paying sales bonuses so that they split the sales bonus over 12 months. And then like the actual money going out the door. It's aligned with money coming in from customers.
0: Gotcha. I love the buckets of revenue financing, expense financing. You hit on something, and let me know if I'm missing it. You talked about acquisition financing. Are people using CapChase to be able to acquire companies?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure if you were able to see the partnership that we have with MicroAcquire. But so, you know, M&A is coming to to tech, right? And, and it's coming earlier and earlier and earlier. And by, by M&A, sorry, I don't mean tech companies getting acquired by you know, like big incumbents and another place. I'm talking about like tech companies buying other smaller tech companies to you know, fuel growth or to complement part of the offering, right? So, so that's here and it's going to stay, right? So if as a tech company you want to finance those purchases, you have a couple options. Either you buy them with equity, which then becomes very expensive, right? Or you finance them with external financing. And then if you're a tech company that, ha- that is burning money, if you go to a bank and try to get a loan, to acquire another company that's also burning money, they're just going to escort you out the door, right? So then <laughs> the option that, that that exists now is you go to CAPTCHA's, you connect the target's data, the target company's data after the LOI, and then we just turn out an offer in less than 48 hours for the acquisition. And then instead of having to acquire a company with 100% of equity, they have to put in like 10 to 15%, and the rest is split between a seller nodes and CAPTCHA's financing. And then the way that this Acquisition financing is paid back is again as you acquire a company and that company has future revenues they can predict as those revenues come in part of those revenues which you know which part go to pay back the financing.
0: Okay, I'm all in on this. I can get money from Cap Chase. I'm gonna get a loan based on my predictable revenue. How what's like the cri- the minimum criteria as far as people that you lend to? Is it? And um, you only do above a million in revenue, or is it what's the starting point?
1: Yeah. So, actually, you know, I think our smallest customers have a couple hundred K of ARR a year, even less, and maybe like even a hundred K of ARR. And our largest customers have hundreds of millions of ARR. We have public companies, we have conglomerates, and we have a, a ton of large companies. So, yeah, but the bare minimum is like a hundred K. And like more than the revenue, it's about the, revenue generating history, right? So given that we are working with predictable revenue, we need to be able to predict it, right? So that is at least six months of revenue generating history.
0: Gotcha. At least six months of revenue generating history, but you've done some as small as a hundred thousand in annual recurring revenue or or sales. Very interesting. Okay, so you've given a nice alternative to venture capital. One thing. Let's go the complete opposite route. There's a lot of bootstrapped founders that listen to this. Okay, this is interesting, but I'm nervous to take money. And one thing I didn't ask: what's the interest rate people are usually paying to get this capital?
1: It's nothing. Like we're seeing as little as one, two percent. You know, in the large companies, and then the max would be around eight percent or something like that
0: gotcha so yep so paying one to eight percent to get this money but now i'm nervous because i've got to pay it back so if you're talking to a bootstrapped founder how should they think about this and what i'm trying to get at is like myself as a bootstrapped founder i'm always thinking about capital allocation it's am i using money the best way to either get more customers to hire the right people or invest in the right technology what advice would you give to Bootstrap founders that are looking at this as a potential option?
1: Okay, so for Bootstrap founders, this is literally the best option in the planet to get the best of both worlds because they're not getting diluted at all, right? The Bootstrap founders, they're really good at managing cash, right? Like they, they know that they're not going to take external funding, they're not going to get equity, so they're very disciplined about what to do with the cash, right? So then what we always, how we always work together with Bootstrap founders is they know really what activities they can predict and which ones they can't, right? Like you cannot predict what's the output of a new engineer that you're going to hire, right? Like that, you know, it can go in many different directions. Or you cannot predict how a new product is going to do in the market, right? So those are bets that if you're bootstrapped, you need to take it very carefully and in a contained way and kind of like grow into them. So for that, it doesn't really make sense to take a lot of financing because then you have to give it back. And if you don't know if, the, if those bets are going to produce returns, then better not to not do it. But for other activities that are predictable, and that's things like working capital or waiting to get to your customers or user acquisition, which after a while, you can really predict almost perfectly your CAC and your LTV and your retention and things like that. Then for those, it makes sense to get non dilutive financing because the return of a new user, if you know your LTV CAC, usually is going to be way higher than what it costs to get the funding to get that customer. Right. So for those predictable activities, then we always, I mean, we always recommend and work together with the Bootstrap founders to get that money. And then also a key question that they always have, which is, is great and has given us like a lot of feedback on how to develop further the product, is that they, they tell us like, hey, like, I would like to know not just how much I should take, sorry, how much I can take, but how much I should take and when I should take it. Right. So then our system, what they do is based on the data that's we extract from the bootstrap companies, we tell them like, hey, you can get, imagine, half a million dollars, but you probably don't need that today. Today, you should take max 81K. And the following month, you have a few payments coming in, so maybe you need to take zero. And the following month, maybe you need to take 110K, because that is what the amount that we're confident that they will be able to deploy into generating returns. And they won't be paying a cent for idle capital.
0: I like that approach. So if I'm a bootstrap founder, first, get my unit economics in order, meaning do I know how much it costs to acquire somebody? And two, do I know how much I will make from them over their lifetime or in the next three to six months? And if I can prove I can acquire people, then it's almost a no brainer. It's like you could take half a million, but it's like just take dip your toes in the water, take 50,000, put it into your kind of growth machine and really scale up because you're right i mean the return you're going to make on that customer is going to more than outpace the cost for that capital right of one to eight percent so w- would that be the kind of the thought process to go down exactly
1: exactly and to give you an idea we have a, this customer he's he bootstrapped the company and they are like 5.5 million a now like it's it's, it's growing he's doing nicely right but of course he he doesn't want to sell to external to investors so What he said is like, hey, like this. I wish I had this two years ago, but I mean, you didn't exist two years ago, so I'm I'm using Capchase now. But basically, what he said is that the fees. If I want to grow this business from five to twenty million AR, I'm going to be drawing around ten or twelve million dollars with Capchase, right? So the fees for that, I don't know how much they're gonna be, but like, imagine I think it's around five percent of that or something like that. So he said that those fees whatever they, that adds to I don't remember now, going to create, I mean, the financing that he's getting and what it means, he's going to create $80 million in exit value, which is what, would he, is what, what he would have lost if he had sold the, or if he had sold some part of the company to, to raise equity. So that is the scale of what this means for founders. It's not like you're paying, you're, sure, you're going to be paying a few hundred K in fees, but the exit value that you're getting is tens of millions of
0: dollars. All right, I'm sold. This is a very selfish question. Have you seen any agencies on your platform?
1: Yeah, actually, agencies are doing a bunch of rollups. So we're seeing a lot of agencies buying other smaller agencies and lumping them together and then (laughs) achieving kind of like scale velocity.
0: Wow. You might have these case studies on your website, but I feel like you need to replace your homepage with all these because you might be convincing someone like myself who is as a bootstrap founder, I'm conditioned to be all about the cash flow, build up a year to six months of cash in the backlog. But that comes at the expense of speed, right? By being cautious, I could have been more aggressive with investing and maybe grown more. It's such a tough balance as you try and navigate these decisions as a founder. That's right. Yeah. And that's
1: what we're trying to help. Like, we're not just like a financing platform. We, we actually want to help funders like you to, yeah, to grow in a faster way without risking the, the business every day.
0: All right, that's super exciting. Yeah, I, I love the partnership with MicroAcquire because you can connect the founders, the acquisitions with your platform. That's really smart. Okay, I want I want to shift to you a little bit in CapChase because I was I actually had your funda- your fundraising wrong. I looked at it's updated. You came up with this idea, which I want to hear about, but you've raised, what I see right now in TechCrunch is over $280 million. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, yeah, that was the, the last one. Yeah, in total, we've raised... A lot, yeah, almost.
0: Oh my gosh. So when did you start this company?
1: So we, let's say one year and a month ago. Wow. We had zero dollars in the bank account.
0: You've gone essentially from idea to $280 million in under two years. Talk to me about your headspace and your psychology where you have this idea. It's, wow, this is very real. We have hundreds of millions of dollars how do you even approach your strategy going from idea to that scale? What's your mindset?
1: Yeah, this is a good question. So, I don't know, from the outside, you know, it looks like, oh, like they raised a ton of money, like they've made it. And from the inside, what I see is just like, it's not that I don't care about the money. Like, sure, it helps us, the risk stuff, and it it allows us to go a little bit faster, but it doesn't mean anything, right? There's just so much to build. And then startup land, everything is so fragile that you just cannot count on having $300 million in the bank and just, oh, I have $300 million to spend. Because it's not just the money that you get, it's also the expectations that you set for the company. And and sure, like, yeah, $300 million is a lot, but that means that your investors expect you to turn that into 10x or 100x, right? So then like you need to still make sure that you know, every dollar still counts and, and you need to make sure that you, that you deploy them in the right way. So... For myself, as we've grown from idea to to now, where it's hyper growth mode, going like crazy, I've gone from doing like a lot of things and participating very closely in sales and in partnerships and in product go to market and and in product and in, in a little bit of everything to like spending most of my time arranging a team of superstars and then almost like seeing things as opposed to doing, relying on secondhand information. And that has been tough because it's the first time that I'm doing it, right? So, until now, I've always worked really hard and always had a lot of pride on doing, on doing like a lot of things and doing them really well and really fast. And now that I'm not doing tangible things, now I can't go. I, I cannot go and say, "Oh, I've done this and this." I have to wait for the team to do it. That sometimes makes me question: Am I doing the right things? You know, because <laughs> I, I don't get that rush of actually doing things. But yeah, it's just I always tell the team, right? Like it, it is the fundraising success is not an indication of enterprise success. Right? Like the road is long. And we are, we're just getting started. And there's a lot of things that we need to do still. So in that sense, I think that we behave a little bit like like bootstrappers. And then one of our investors who's great, one of our engine investors, uh, he, when we raised this last round, he was like, hey, remember that this is just the beginning and never forget that. And this reminded me of, I'm a bit of a history geek, right? I read, and then, <laughs> this reminds me of this. When emperors in Rome did triumphs after successful campaigns, they would go back to Rome and do a triumph. When the whole city was idolizing them and thinking they were gods, they had a person right next to them in the chariot that was just whispering to them, remember that one day you will die. So <laughs> a little bit dark, but remember that in startup land, everything is super fragile, right? Like you just need to know that. Sure, you raised a lot of money. That doesn't mean anything, Like you need to build a company with that money. You can't just like throw it away in, in things that have no return.
0: So true. The, yeah, people get celebrated for raising money, but the game's just really beginning and then it's it's all off to the races. And that's so interesting because the role of the CEO takes so many different forms. Like before, you're the creator, you're the builder. And then as you go to this next round of funding, now your number one job is to get the A players, set them up for success and either motivate them or train them and get out of their way. And yeah, you're right. Your to-do list is less of getting things done, but it's so much more strategic and more intangible, but it's everything.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that requires some adjustment internally.
0: Okay, so I want to hear about your path to going from idea to raising hundreds of millions of dollars. You you have were an engineer. You've been at Harvard. How did all of this get started?
1: Yeah, so let's see. I mean, I've always loved building things. I mean, like, I've always derived a lot of joy from seeing things grow. I don't know, like, my favorite toys as a kid were Legos, right? Just to be able to tinker around and build stuff and always have this mechanical mind where I would like to like tear things apart and then build them up again. So yeah, I, I have a background in engineering. I did mechanical engineering in, in Madrid and then nuclear engineering in Munich. And then I worked for, for a couple of some doing engineering and decided I was never going to work as an engineer because the actual job was super repetitive and just focused on like marginal optimization of of processes and uh, and other things, and I like to build things from scratch. So yeah, then I I went into consulting to learn how to work, how to work hard, and I was there for a couple of years, and I actually didn't really enjoy it, so I was always doing things on the side. I launched with a couple of friends, a couple of startups, and consumers, so nothing to do with CAPTCHA's, but they were like great learning lessons. In in, in one, we, we we achieved like a few thousand users, a few hundred transactions, but in the end, we closed because the union economics were terrible. And the second one that we did, we actually... Put a lot of focus, you learned the lesson, put a lot of focus on union economics. And we were making money from day one. But it was a very small niche, very small thing. So anyways, we're also doing it part-time. So it's hard to focus on a full-time consulting job and a part-time gig in a small startup. So then I decided that I actually wanted to work on building things from scratch. So I quit consulting and joined a pre-revenue SaaS company. And I thought that I was going to like, do strategy in this pre-revenue company. And the day that I got in through the door, they were like, hey, here's your phone. Now you have to call people to to sell the product. And I was like, what? I, I had never been very comfortable like, call calling people. But anyways, I just did it. And it worked out. And I, I ended up leading the sales and customer success teams. And then moved to London to open up the, the local office, enter the market, and build a local team. And for three years, we took the company from zero to a few million AR. And I was totally exposed to all the problems that we're trying to face right now, right? Like, we were trying to get all the cash upfront from our customers our customers didn't want to do that they wanted to pay monthly so we knew about the strengths of this you know cash gap that's typical in particular revenue businesses and yeah we're just funding our growth off of vc funding with the dilution associated to it but like it was just like we, we were just thinking that it was the pain that you have to go through when you're launching a startup and then i decided that i really needed to learn a lot more in order to be able to achieve my personal mission, which was like to launch a startup, and I went to, to HBA to do my MBA. And at the same time, two of my now co-founders left that company. One was going to INSEAD and one was going to Berkeley. And then we decided that, hey, we had always been talking about launching something. We had never had the time or the mind space to do it. So we decided to be deliberate about it. And we decided to explore the intersection between something that we knew and something that we liked. And we knew B2B SaaS and we liked fintech. So we started looking, when we went into our MBAs, we started looking at different solutions to help companies to either pay later or get paid earlier. And then four months into the program, everything clicked together. And we had the original idea of CapChase, which was like almost like a sales tool, like allowing salespeople to offer flexible payment terms, but still get all the cash up to be able to keep finance happy. And we started talking with hundreds of founders. The reception was incredible. And we started to see that, hey, this is maybe not a sales tool. It's more like a growth capital resource. So then, that was we were approaching the end of our first year of the NBA, and then we raised a round from Blink Capital, Caffeinated Capital, and, and SciFi, who is led by Nelly Leftin, and and that was amazing. We raised our first round last year in, in the middle of July. I remember it was incredible to raise our first pre-seed, and then we got our first customer at the end of August, and since then it exploded. It's just crazy growth. Like I've never seen anything like that, and, and According to our investors, not a company that grows faster than catches. I mean, at least they haven't seen one in the last 10 years. And yeah, now we're expanding the, the vision. So it's no longer just about revenue financing, but we want to put all of finance on autopilot. And we started with revenue financing. We kept on with expense financing, and then we're launching a new product later in the year, kind of like cash management. And yeah, it's, it's working. it's working really well. Like challenges, of course, like every single day you have new challenges, but it's all about how many learning cycles you can get in a given week to keep growing as a team as a company All
0: right, there's a lot in there that's a really cool story i've got three questions to follow up on first you were a, a mechanical engineer a nuclear engineer and then all of a sudden you're a salesperson but then you're the number one salesperson what do you think made you good at sales because it's a very non-traditional I know
1: people are always asking me that i think that when i went into a sales school or a sales conversation i wasn't really trying to sell, like, like uh, I don't think that I was never motivated by, like, commission or, or anything like that. It was more about, how am I going to solve the problem that this person has, right? So I would just ask a ton of questions and almost brainstorm with them how to solve those problems. And then sometimes the solution to those problems was the tool that we had, that we had created in the SaaS company. And sometimes it was something different, right? So then I was just super transparent. I was like, hey, like, maybe for this case, if you're looking for A, we can really help you. But I think that you could solve it with other tools like this and that however if you're looking for B or C, then that's where this tool would be helpful for you. I think that um, co-creating aspect of it with the customers and also being super transparent, I think that's what, I don't know, like what allowed me to to do well there.
0: That's a really good insight, just collaborating with them and trying to solve their problems. I'm interested, I love looking at startups from the framework of idea, traction, and growth. You talked about how you and your co-founders came up with the idea Talk to me a little bit more about traction. You said you talked to co- you talked to founders of SaaS companies, but how did you first how did you get your first 100 customers before you went to that next level of growth where VCs are telling you wow, we've never seen by grow like this? What were the early days of acquisition for you?
1: Yeah, it was a lot of hustling. A lot of hustling and a lot of speaking with people and 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 proactively asking for advice. So, I mean, when we raised our, our we, see, we were just speaking a lot with portfolio companies of our investors and just getting to learn more and more about their problems and trying to close deals. But of course, like, we were just tiny and these were companies with a few million in AR. So then mm-hmm. they were just like, oh yeah, but what am I going to get, 200K? I, I can't even do anything with that. But the feedback was great, right? So then you get one customer and then with one customer, you start waving that customer to everybody else. So you just gonna like, hey, like these guys, you know what they're doing? Like they got some money up front for almost free, like super, super cheap, no dilution. They poured all of that into growth, they turned it into more ARR, and they did it again and again. And then people started to get interested. So we would see people just doing like a 25K draw, putting it into growth, and then doing it again almost as an experiment. And then they, <laughs> we started to see some cases turning into like really growth flywoods, you know, companies going from 100K to a couple of million in eight weeks or things like that. So then once you start to understand much more about all the different pains of your like target customers. We call them internally ICPs, ideal customer profile. That's what other people call them, right? You start to learn about all their problems, about all the pains, and how you can solve those pains with um, different configurations of, of the product. And then when you go to, to, to a potential customer, then you're actually, again, like you're co-creating with them and just focusing on their problems based on all the comparables that you have. And then at some point, you start creating a mini brand, right? Like you help one founder, and the founder is so excited that he goes and tells all the founder friends or he goes out to dinner with somebody and tells them, hey, this is what I did this week and it's incredible. And then you start getting inbounds and more referrals. And then you basically hit on your own flywheel. So that's how it happened. And, and now, I mean, our first draw was our first customer drew 25K for the first draw. I think one of the latest ones that we have been working with has drawn over, I think, 17 or 18 million. So it is. Everything grows exponentially, right? Like not just the amount of customers, but also the size of the customers and the frequency at which these customers draw and deploy into growth.
0: That's insane. So really, it goes back to getting someone to believe in the product, they use it, and then they're not diluting themselves. They're using that money to grow revenue, whether that's marketing or whatever it is they're doing. They're growing their business. And then was it as simple as word of mouth marketing or referral marketing or... Did you do something on product hunt or indie hackers that got traction, or was it just word of mouth? It was primarily word of mouth.
1: Word of mouth is still really important. And now we actually are very focused on, on hey, word of mouth is great, but can you really action word of mouth? Can you make word of mouth go 3X? You, can, you really can, right? I mean, you can help companies to, you can incentivize them to, to refer, and you can get them to, I don't know, give them some you know, discount if they bring a friend or whatever. But you can't really action word of mouth, right? So we did do product hunt. We haven't done any hackers, I think, and we did both. In, uh, so we did product hunt in a like, very experiment-driven way. But right now, what we're trying to do, we actually like, set up like a growth pod, which I think that you must know more about this than anybody else. But we, we set up a growth pod with a growth PM, a growth engineer, and a growth data scientist. And now we're carrying out a bunch of you know experiments to, to do two things, to understand really well where all our ICPs are and, and ways to reach them and have like information about why they would need CapChase and how it would how help them. And then also to take out every little bit of friction along the onboarding process, right? So we want to make basically bring the gap between a customer landing into CapChase and getting some reward to zero.
0: Amazing. That's, that's pretty impressive growth. Yeah. I mean, if you can find those right business owners, SaaS founders at the right stage of their company and, and get them, whether that's through thought leadership or the right partnership, man, your lifetime value is so insane. That's cool. I have a very dumb question, but what does it feel like when you ha- all of a sudden look at your bank account and you have hundreds of millions of dollars in it?
1: Man, I remember, <laughs> that's a good question. I remember I took a, a screenshot when the wires came in and I, I sent it to, to my mom like, hey, this is why I look at this. But since then, I don't think I've ever looked into it again. <laughs> I mean, now we track it, of course, but again, right, it means nothing. It just means that if you look at it, like the expectations are right, just so brutally high that you can't really, I mean, you, you can't really waste dollars or anything, right? Like I, I always tell my team, like, hey, when they ask for something, it's like, is it expensive or not? And I always say, what are the returns? What do you expect? What, what is this going to action? You know, what metric is it going to action and to what degree and how confident? how confident are you? About this, because then I would say, hey, spend a million dollars and you get two back, then it's great. Let's do that all night long. If you spend $10,000 and you get zero back, then it's really expensive, right? So we always have to be disciplined about it.
0: Yeah, you probably have to promote that even more internally when your colleagues and employees see these big numbers in the headlines. But um, that's awesome. I like that you sent a screenshot to your mom. I'd probably do the same thing. All right. So you went to business school with some friends and you're literally coming up with ideas on ventures you want to go after. So I love doing this idea of a startup idea brainstorm. And I'd love to know what are some half-baked startup ideas you have or problems that need to be solved? These can be big ideas or these can be really dumb, small ideas, but what's on your mind?
1: <laughs> okay, it may be very dumb, but I think that if it worked, it would be pretty big. But one of the genesis of CAPTCHA is, like, or, or one of the first ideas that we had, is just really hard to pull off. But if anybody does it, I would love to, to invest or, or like help or whatever. But okay, let's see. We were calling it like a multilateral network. What it basically means is imagine a platform that puts like, has payments and cash flow information from every company in a vertical or from a lot of companies in a vertical right it can be like a i think it works very let's say in a very kind of like supply chain or oriented vertical but what the platform would do is again i have all that data about payments and cash flows and invoices and so on and then it would clear out payments within companies so imagine that you have company a owes company b a hundred dollars and then company b owes company c a hundred dollars Then the platform I would say at the end of this period, hey, company A, you have to pay $100 to the platform. And then they go to company C and say, hey, company C, after this period, you're getting $100 from the platform. And they go to company B and they say, hey, company B, you were owed 100 you owed 100 This period, like you're at zero, you don't get anything and you don't have to pay anything. And then the platform would do all the associated paperwork, like how to account for this, how to sell taxes for this, and so on, while avoiding all the cash flows and allowing all these companies to minimize paperwork, minimize working capital, et cetera. So we, we spoke with a bunch of large corporate companies, and everybody was excited. But it's a typical cold start. Like, how do you get there? The typical thing that until you have the network, it's worth zero. And when you have the network, nobody can leave.
0: That's super interesting. I wonder with startups, how much of it would be Google, Facebook, and Amazon just going back and forth with paying each other money? Uh, that That's a really fun idea.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Any other half-baked ideas that you have?
1: Oh, man, I think I have, I have some like weird inspiration moments. Those are probably too dumb to say out loud. But, but yeah, there are a lot that come and go. But this one has been uh, fixated around for a while.
0: Yeah, I think if someone can get the right f- kind of toe in with the big players, that one could definitely happen. But it's definitely a big lift up front. Well, Miguel, I like to leave the podcast with one question that I ask everybody. And it's what's the nicest thing anyone has done for you in your professional career? Wow,
1: what's the nicest thing? <laughs> so actually, like one of my my earliest boss, he was my boss at in, in consulting. Do you know, my my peers in consulting? He came from well, he actually went to GSB, and he was entrepreneurial at mind and at heart. But he has somehow uh, gotten stuck in consulting. When we started, he's like a really, I mean, he's been very successful, and he strategy, yeah like a public, huge company in Spain. So his time is very scarce. But when we were um, coming up with cupcakes, uh with, with the idea, he really helped us not only with the feedback and the way that he did the feedback was very candid, right? Like it's not usually people that, that care for you will just want to make you happy and they will tell you things that you want to hear. But he was just like brutal, like radical candor. And it was great, right? Because that that really pushes you Makes it better, and then what he did is he introduced us to other people in, in this huge company in in, in Spain, and, and then those people connected us to other people, and then to other people, and then eventually that we got to to meet Blink Capital, which was our first lead investor, and that kind of like set like set us off to the races. So it was like a very small action for him probably, but it meant the world, and it was super 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 helpful.
0: Right. it just people that go out of their way, give up their time, open a door. It One, motivates you, but probably changes your mindset and gives you that confidence to keep pursuing it. Because in the early days, an idea is so fragile. It can go in so many different directions and those people have a big impact.
1: That's right. And then it is one thing for the idea to be good you know, for your friend who never wants to make to you unhappy. But then after like several rounds of refinement, it seems exciting to somebody really smart that does a lot of things. That also gives you that confidence that you mentioned.
0: Yeah. Well, Miguel, I can't thank you enough for the time. Where would you like to point people if they want to learn more about you or more about CapChase? Yeah. I mean,
1: people, just please send me an email at miguel at capchase.com. Miguel is M I G U E L. And I'd be more than happy to help, lend a hand, or have a chat.
0: Well, that's awesome, man. Well, I'm excited to watch you guys continue to grow and maybe I'll I'll get the courage and throw my agency on there and start being a better capital allocator but thanks for the time this was really fun I'm
1: not happy to jam with you about that yeah thank you so much
0: Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money, but I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. Growth Hit serves as your external growth team after working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients. Growthit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen and Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out growthhit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of a hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can. Just just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.